Producer Michael Miracle here, and before we get into today's podcast, I'd like to quickly invite you to join the I Work For Him Nation. Being a part of the nation is all about being Jesus in your workplace, because you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. So, head to our website, iworkforhim.com, and click on the nation flag, then prayerfully consider joining the nation. We'd love for you to join us in this workplace movement. Thanks again for listening. Here's today's podcast. You've tuned into the fastest one hour in Christian talk radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in to I Work For Him today. As you're listening to us so many different ways, we want to thank you for tuning in. Whether you're listening in the car on AM 570 or AM 910, maybe you're listening on Red Nation Rising, Let's Talk Faith.com, iHeartRadio, perhaps you're listening on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, however you're hearing the show today. Just know that Martha and I prayed for it. Yes, we did. We prayed for you that something we say today would cause you to dig deeper into your faith and to connect in what you hear on Sunday with what you do and your nine to five. And speaking of that, I want to give you some thoughts for the weekend because there's some things that we all need to consider. And just know that your witness in your workplace, it's powerful. And that the integrity that you display and the excellence that you display, those things are glorifying to your heavenly father. And as Christ followers, you and I should be the most powerful, the the best, the, the brightest, the best example of an employee in the workplace. Bar none, as Christ followers, we should be setting the example of excellence in our position, regardless of what the position would be, whether it's at the bottom of the pole, the totem pole, or at the top of the totem pole, whether you're CEO or janitor, your position has an opportunity for ministry. Do you take it seriously? Are you taking the opportunity each and every day to look for ways where the Lord is running people into your life while you're doing an excellent job? So as you ponder your weekend, take that same attitude into your leisure time. When you've got extra time, when you're walking through your neighborhood or when you're walking into church or whether you're at the store of the weekend or you're having a barbecue or whatever you're doing, just know that the Lord's going to bring people in your life. Skip the conversations about weather. Skip the conversations about sports and go right into it and ask them how they're doing. Ask them how, if they're praying together. Ask them if they're reading their Bible. Ask them how their relationship with the Lord is. Ask them how they're doing. But make sure the people know that the people that are around you know that you care about them. And make sure whatever you do, wherever you are, that you do it with excellence. You know, Martha, every Friday it's great to have you join us online. You can stop videoing now. Martha's videoing the beginning of the, the show. I she wanted to get on fun. Facebook Live. Yeah, I know. No, she's I didn't been, do Facebook Live. Well, that's good because it freaks me out. Okay, but we've got a really excellent guest on today. We've got Dr. Benjamin Quinn joining us. He's written an excellent book, Every Waking Hour, an introduction to work and vocation for Christians. And Dr. Quinn joins us as he, he serves as the Associate Dean for Institutional Effectiveness and Assistant Professor of Theology and History of Ideas at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the College of Southeastern. Man, if I had a bio like that, I could walk into any room. Dr. Benjamin Quinn, welcome to I Work For Him. Thank you, Jim. It's good to be with you guys. Now, I promised I'd call you Ben after that, but that is the heck, you know, you, you're a busy guy. you got a lot of stuff going on i got a lot going on. I'm not complaining. I'm very thankful for it. We have My wife and I have four kids at home, so that keeps us super busy as well. And that's my oh. We can scrub all the other titles, and I'll just be dad instead if that works oh, for you. Well, that is the, the highest title that you'll ever have is father, the greatest privilege that you'll ever have. Ben, as you join us here on I Work For Him, I've given you some time to think about this answer, but how does the message, the, the, the theme, I Work For Him, how does I Work For Him resonate with you personally? 
Oh, it's huge. I mean, any any ministry or any person or any book or any pastor who is helping Christians from every walk of life just connect their faith, their Christian faith, to their everyday work. That's fantastic. I love what you guys are doing over the radio, especially coming out of Tampa there. I think it's fantastic, and it's needed all the way across the country. I hope more people do do the same thing. Now tell me some good news. You're working with Southeastern Theological Seminary. One of the issues that we struggle with and we fight against all the time is that there's a lot of people out there in the workplace that now recognize that they've got a calling on their lives, that they have an opportunity for ministry in the workplace. How is Southeastern equipping their current graduating classes of pastors and missionaries to recognize the fact that their job is the equipping of the saints for them to go out and be released into their mission field, whether that mission field will be right here in their town as a, as a used car sales guy, an attorney, an insurance agent, a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, not just those people going overseas or into the pulpit. How have you guys shifted your focus to help people understand that? Yeah, so our president at Southeastern, Dr. Danny Aiken, he has branded Southeastern for the entire time he's been here, some 15 years or so, as a great commission college and seminary. And a lot of it, directly to your question, Jim, it has to do with how we understand the Great Commission. So the, the mission of Southeastern is that we exist to glorify Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. And if we limit the Great Commission simply to training pastors and missionaries for evangelism, if that's all that we're doing, then I think we're missing it. To be very, very clear, it's not less than that. And it's, and it's certainly the responsibility of the seminary to train pastors and missionaries as best we can. And evangelism, discipleship are absolutely critical. I'm not diminishing that in any way whatsoever. But at the same time, we're broader than that as well. In other words, even in the Great Commission itself, Matthew 28, Jesus begins with, therefore, teaching everyone everything that I've commanded you. And we think, first and foremost, what are the commands of Christ? Uh, There's nothing greater than to love God and to love other people. And there's nothing about that greatest command, the first and the second command, there's nothing about that that's limited just to pastors and missionaries. So immediately, if we're taking the Great Commission seriously, we're talking about all Christians. And we're talking about everything that they do in all of life, at all time, in all space, not just pastors and missionaries in pioneering context, although that's really, really important as well. Mm-hmm. Hey, Ben, we're getting a little bit of feedback on from your phone. If you could pick it up, it would be great, uh, because we're, we're hearing some background noise. That would be awesome. All right, so, sure, is that better? That's so much better. Thank you very, very much. All right, so what are you hearing from the students, from the graduates, mm-hmm. from the alumni that told you, hey, I need to write a book. I, I need to write this book every waking hour which is i don't know if it's your latest book but it's a book i got in my hands a few i don't know probably five or six months ago what caused you to write this book what were you hearing from your students that said i need to write this book well, we were hearing things from several places. So first of all, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I co-wrote the book with a very close friend of mine named Walter Strickland. He also teaches here with us at Southeastern, and, uh, and he receives a lot of the credit as well for all, anything good in the book. Um, but in terms of the motivation behind it, it came first and foremost from, from our provost, actually, at Southeastern. Bruce Ashford was in conversation with the Kern Foundation, uh, the uh, Kern Family Foundation, who's put a lot of money and, and just invested a lot all the way around uh, for the purpose of helping to, st- to stir this conversation about the intersection of faith, work, and economics as a whole. 
we were already hearing from students, especially on the mission field, how do we think better about, uh, you know, a common mission language is platform. When we think about we're going to a closed country or a high security country for platform, I feel like I'm being somewhat disingenuous saying I'm here under the auspice of being a business person, um, but I'm really here to share the gospel, and I feel like there's disconnect. Does it have to be that way? Well, at the same time, we're in conversations with the Kern Foundation about receiving a grant to help to stir up this conversation at Southeastern and help to bring clarity about that. And it began with a better sort of better theory about how Christians engage culture broadly. And then it began to narrow down specifically into, okay, now how especially do we understand uh, vocation or calling broadly? And then more particularly, our own tactile, everyday nine-to-five or five-to-nine responsibilities of our work. So we began to really dial that in. We taught a class that you can, you can actually take it for free online at Southeastern, uh, and then a book came alongside that after that. So it came but from multiple say, so conversation you're, partners. You're saying they could, people could take a class online for free from Southeastern. What's the name of the class? Uh, it's, it's, it's called uh, Work and Worship. Uh, and it's, it's basically, it, at least in part, the class notes that eventually turned into the book that we're talking about uh, that Walter and I taught. You can go to the intersectproject.org, and you can see where you can get the book itself. There's several books that are related to this, and uh, you can take the class for free right there. All right, I've got that. I've got that uh, web address, the Intersect Project or intersectproject.org forward slash mm-hmm. free dash classes forward slash work and worship. Go. I got it. <laughs> we'll make sure we post that one on on Facebook tonight. Yes. Now, Martha, this is quite the backstory to how we found out about this book, isn't there? Well, there is. It's kind of cool because I have a cousin, um, Todd Haynes. Shout out for Todd. He works for Lexham Press and. Anybody that knows the Goodreads app where you keep track of your books, I saw that he had added this book to his bookshelf, and it intrigued me right away and looked like something that we would want to um, inquire about. So through uh, my connection with my cousin at Lexham Press, we were able to get a hold of it and start the process that led to today's interview. So kind of neat. So, Ben, that makes us practically family. Yeah. And and big shout-out to Lexham. They've been what fantastic to work for. In fact, I'm working on another book for them right now. I'm very thankful for Lexham. Well, and, and Martha reminded me that this book, Every Waking Hour, is part of a, there's there's like three books in the set that go along with this? Yeah, that's right. So our, our provost at Southeastern, uh, Dr. Bruce Ashford, wrote uh, the, ver- the first that came out, uh, which is called uh, is Every, every square, square Inch. inch? Yeah, mm-hmm. Every Square Inch, which is based off of uh, Abraham Kuyper's uh, famous um, lecture series where he talks about that there's not a single square inch in the whole of God's creation that Christ hasn't claimed as mine. And so mm-hmm. Dr. Ashford, borrowing from that, uh, titled his book, Every Square Inch. And then Lexham helped us to sort of keep things in continuity with every waking hour for Walter and me. And then Dr. David Jones, one of our ethics professors, uh, wrote a book called Every Good Thing, thinking about uh, economics, the material world, how we use money, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Wow, that one, that's a good one. Go ahead. So Martha. let me just, um, I, I went to the website so that our listeners will understand where to go to learn more about all three of those books, as well as that class that they can take. And if they go to the intersectproject.org. Is it right. the intersect project or just no, intersect project? intersectproject.org. Right. And then it says right on the front page, there's a place for resources. And when you click on that, it's got the books, it's got a free class. All of that is really very clear right there. So I think it'll be easy for people to learn more on their own. All right. So, Ben, I started asking you a question before we got to the break. And I apologize. I should have been looking at my clock to see how much time I had left. But, you know, <laughs> one of the things that we, we love to explore, for, we got a lot of people listening. We got a lot of people listening live. And we got a lot of people to listen to a rebroadcast and then some podcasts down the road that will go all over the world. Mm-hmm. Everybody's, everybody that hears this show is wrestling with this whole idea of, 
their faith should be impacting everything. And most of us are going through a deprogramming process where mm-hmm. we've been programmed to segment our lives, to compartmentalize our faith and our work. And we're going through this deprogramming to reconnect things, reconnect our faith into everything that we do. Even mowing our lawn can be for the glory of God. Although some people who live in places where they have to mow their lawn all the time may question that. <laughs> and, then the, and then the creator may go, hey, I didn't put grass there. I don't know why you put grass there. Why do you fertilize it so you got to mow it all the time? That's just a pride thing. But that's another thing because you're, which part of the world do you live in? I live in North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh in the little town of Wake Forest. So you got you got that Kentucky bluegrass sod up there where you fertilize it and it grows all the time. So yeah, you, you've got it. Yep. Okay, so yep. how how did this message resonate with you? Why did you decide with Walter Strickland to write this book about the connection of faith and work and vo- and the power of vocation and understanding the whole faith, work, and economics message? What about that message resonated with you and your and and why did you say that's the book I want to write? Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, it, part of it came at the request of helping Southeastern to think better about this conversation of, uh, generally speaking, Christians engaging culture more clearly, more carefully, more thoughtfully, uh, not, not some type of uh, retreat from the world, but rather recognizing that the whole world still belongs to Christ. I, I think it's easy for us. Some of this has had to do with the way that we've thought about the end times from a previous generation and evangelical thought, where this, even if it's not always said this way, the gospel becomes this sort of good old gospel ship mentality of if you if you come to Christ you sort of get on the good old gospel ship and everything else is is going to burn up and oftentimes the sort of going to hell in a handbasket kind of language but if, but we're secure here in the good old gospel ship and I'm not I just don't think that's actually accurate with respect to the way that the entire story wraps up the way that the entire drama or narrative of scripture it seems to be first and foremost that Christ that God so loved the entire world and I think the language of world is important there what God made good by virtue of his entire material world both seen and unseen parts of his world what he made good Sin has not made bad. Sin has corrupted, perverted, it misdirects, it it twists God's good world. But the world itself is still a good thing, and part of our responsibility in His world, as Spirit-filled believers walking in His way, is that we actually help to redirect God's good world back towards Him for the glory of God. And if that's true, then there is no there's no space for this sort of compartmentalization. This this part of this part of creation is sacred. This part is secular, or this part of our life is sacred. This part is secular. That's a that's an unnecessary and, and not even a, a real division of reality. So I okay, think a lot that, of that motivation is where, we, where it's come from. Oh, okay, but Good. how did that resonate with you personally? I mean, you know, nobody writes a book if they're not passionate about it. I mean, it's one thing to say, <laughs> sure. um, you're, hey, my boss told me to write a book. And I'm like, fine, I'll write a book, whatever. <laughs> sure. I mean, you're a professor so you're, and you're a doctorate, so you've had to do a lot of writing, but nobody writes a book about something like this just because they have to write a book. There was something about this <laughs> message. Well, and, and you, did you grow up in the church? I did, yeah. I grew okay. up in Mississippi in a, in a church there. All right. So, did you grow up knowing that you know that the pastor of your church that you grew up underneath did did that pastor teach you that no matter what you end up doing in your adult life, your work is a mission? Did you grow up in a mm. place like that? I grew up in a context where. Um, my, I had a fantastic pastor growing up. He's a wonderful, wonderful, godly man, and he was very, very faithful to emphasize to uh, to me as a young person at the time and to the rest of the congregation the importance of evangelism, the importance of mission, and he, he absolutely emphasized the importance of even in our daily walks, in our daily lives at work and so on, that we honor Christ in those ways. I, I wasn't capable at that time of really putting the pieces together 
uh, of exactly what that meant. I, still, for me, it was more uh, a faithful Christian life during the week outside of Sunday. Was It was basically good spiritual discipline, spiritual habits, and that's kind of the end of it. That's as far as I could take it. But part part of what sort of tipped me off to the need to, to really focus in on this conversation was a, was a discussion that I had with my older brother, which I talk about uh, in the introduction of the book, mm-hmm. where my, my wife and I are back home at Christmas. We don't get to see my brother and his wife very often, but we're back home at Christmas just enjoying a conversation with them. And my brother is now uh, the principal of the high school that he and I both graduated from. At this time of the conversation, he's the assistant principal, and he's dealing with disciplinary matters and this kind of stuff a lot. And he, asks, he sort of turns to me and says, tell me what you do every day. What, what does a seminary college professor do every day? And to be honest with you, I didn't want to answer the question. So I kind of turned it back on him and just, just dodging the question. I turned it back on him, and I said, well, tell me what you do every day. And he launched into this story about a kid that we'll call Corey, who the long and short of it was um, his parents were very involved in drugs. They were basically using him to deliver drugs to other kids at school. And, and it looked like on the surface that Corey was a drug dealer himself or that he was involved in drugs. And the, the fact was he wasn't involved with it at all. He was being used by his parents because he was under 18 years old and they were taking advantage of, of their minor son because they knew he wouldn't get in as much trouble as they would. And so my brother's telling me this story, and he goes on to tell me how he was able to help Corey. He was able to sort of give him some options to get out of that situation. And then he turns back to me and says, now tell me what you do. And so I go through the situation. I go through sort of my day to day. And then he says, within five minutes of him telling me that story, he says to me, and he's dead serious. He says, um, I just don't see how what I do working in a public high school is, is, is nearly as important as what pastors and missionaries mm-hmm. do on a regular basis and seminary professors. And it, and it, it absolutely broke me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't quite know what to say at the moment, but Ephesians 4 uh, from that point forward, became really, really important to me. Um, Ephesians four eleven and twelve, especially verse twelve, um, that that we've been that that those who are gifted for the ministry of pastoring and teaching and evangelism and so on are gifted for the purpose of equipping the saints in the church for the work of the ministry, and that was critical. And helping helping my brother even and other people as well to see that connection that what you're doing, regardless of where you are, what you're doing as a spirit filled believer actually is the work of ministry itself. That that was really important. Well, and and that's really what I want. I, I, that was my next question. So you already went right into it. But it, that is exactly our point here on I Work for Him is that your brother has he has a powerful ministry as a principal of a high school. And has the amazing ability to influence people that will never darken the doorsteps of a church. And that pastors today are now getting, beginning to realize that they have a lot less exposure to pre-Christians than those of us that are out there in the workforce each and every day. And, And that we need to be making sure that we all need to be equipped for handling that ministry. But, but there's, you know, there's lots of ways to get people involved in that. But I just, I loved your brother's story because it made it very, very real. So I'm really yeah. curious after you have, you know, it, it broke your heart to hear him feel that way. And you've wrestled with this and, and now really claiming, you know, Ephesians 4.12. How does the rest of the conversation with your brother go? Does he now <laughs> feel more equipped for being um, the feet of Christ where he's at? Yeah, I think so. I wouldn't speak for him, and he and I—we yeah. we try to talk fairly often. Well, about you can. He's not here to defend himself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I can say whatever I want. That's now. right. He's your older no, brother. I, Take your chance. He is o- older and bigger, but I'm faster than he is, so I'm not worried about it. Um, no, you, you know, I think I think at the end of the day, it's actually been deeply encouraging for him because I, I I think much of what he was looking for was not 
not ne- not necessarily a validation of purpose. I mean, I think he's he's not insecure in that way. I think mm-hmm. he just needed to know that what he was doing was actually making a difference. And Jim, what mm-hmm. you said a second ago about the quarries of the world will never darken the door of many pastors. That's exactly what I, I told Brandon. Was yeah. I said, Brandon, you know, I, I just described to you sort of my my nine to five every day. Corey will never come, he'll never come to my class. He'll never walk past my door. Um, and and if it's true, if if we're reading Ephesians four eleven and twelve correctly, then part of my job as the those who wear the clerical collar, so to speak, part of my job is to be able to equip people like you to minister to people like Corey. Not not that it's not that I shouldn't do that, but Corey won't come to my class. But he'll come to your office or he'll walk down your hallway, and you need to be able to to minister to that person just like I can minister to him. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful, powerful thing. All right, so you mentioned earlier on the show that you and your bride have four kids. Hmm. Okay, so how old are those kids? Ten, seven, four, and one. Okay, so uh, I'm going to give you a pass on the one-year-old <laughs> and the four-year-old. But okay. the 10-year-old, is it a 10-year-old, a boy or a girl? Girl. Okay, so she's already a preteen. Okay. So <laughs> Don't remind me. Don't oh, no. scared to death. No, no, no. Teenage years are an age of opportunity. You need to read that book, Paul David Tripp, Age of Opportunity. Write that down. Yes, free hint yes. Free hint today. Mm-hmm. Paul David Tripp, Age of Opportunity. The best book out there on dealing with teenage years. Phenomenal. Age of Opportunity. All right, so going back to that. So how are you prepping your 10-year-old daughter, your 7-year-old? How are you prepping them to understand that? Is your 7-year-old a boy or a girl? Uh, boy. So uh, our oldest is the girl and all the rest are boys. Okay, so your seven and your four-year-old, they're still talking about being a fireman. They're still talking about being a, you know, army guy. They're, they're, they're still talking, mm-hmm. you know, maybe your, your 10-year-old, what does she want to be when she grows up? It depends on what day it is, Jim. Okay, so, well, pick, you know, I know. Today, she's a, well, today hey, she's a woman. She, is, uh, she has the opportunity to change her mind anytime. Today she is. <laughs> That's right. Today she wants to be, it's, it's usually three different things, but somewhere, somewhere between artist, uh, pop star, and now and then she wants to be a painter in Paris. So we'll see what happens. All right, so... I, first of all, Ben, my wife said I was coming off like I was attacking you as a seminary guy. I get sometimes uptight because the seminaries, we desperately need the seminaries to help catch pastors up with what's been going on. Catch pastors up with what's going on in, um, uh, really, when you look at what the Kern Foundation is so excited about and helping the faith and work movement and pastors get connected with it, it but it's it's we're, we're behind the eight ball. And so I, I apologize it came off too strong because I was really just trying to have some fun, but Martha said I should be nice. Not at all. Nice. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not, a, I, not offended. Our, our, our wifely role is. But I do want to say, though, that we are so thrilled that um, schools are understanding how Amen. to have better conversations with the students because we are yeah. the ones who somewhere along the way started, you know, segmenting everything and trying to get back to whole life theology and discipleship is what it's all about. And yeah. Just like that, yeah. Tim and Palm Harbor call in, want a copy of the book. Tim, thanks for listening to awesome. I work for him. We'll make sure we get that out to you next week. Okay, Ben, I promised this question. Right before the break, we were talking about you've got a 10-year-old who dreams of being an artist in Paris. I love that. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and, and a son, I didn't ask what he was dreaming about. But what, what we're looking for is what does that conversation look like with your kids as you try to help them understand this idea that their faith and their work, they're all interconnected? Yeah. 
Well, they are young, so we, we have fun conversations about what they dream to be about when they get older. And at, at this stage, what we're trying to build in is a different theory about how they understand the world, how they look at the world. So I talked earlier about even some of my own struggles earlier on with sort of seeing the sacred secular divide, and it's, it's just that in and of itself is not true, I don't think. And, it's unhealth- and, it, and it produces these sort of prioritizing the spiritual dimension of things and sort of diminishing the, the material side of God's world. In the meantime, then, what we're doing with our kids is, um, very, very practically, we call ourselves Team Quinn because it's fun, um, and we, we have a mission statement. We have, we have Team Quinn meetings every Sunday night, and they, the kids absolutely love it. Like, they remind us if, we, if they think that we're going to forget to have Team Quinn meeting. And we, we even have a mission statement because we're, we're nerdy and OCD like that. But we, our mission statement is that Team Quinn exists to love God and to love God's world beginning at home. Now, every, every word of that is very, very intentional. And the older that they get, the more that we intend to sort of unpack about what we mean by that. But just on the surface of it, and just to, to kickstart the conversation, um, Team Quinn exists. First and foremost, even that kind of language tells them that we have a purpose, even as a family, not merely as individuals. We certainly do as individuals, but even as a family unit, we have a purpose. And what is that purpose? It is that we exist to love God, exactly as Christ has told us, that nothing more important than loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love God's world or to love, love neighbor as ourself. We use that language, though, of loving God's world specifically because it's, it, as we love other people, um, in so doing, as our neighbors, the actual people who live next to us, as well as people who are on the other side of the world, or even as we just put our hands to the plow, literally and figuratively, in our work, insofar as we are doing so in a way that genuinely loves God and that serves and loves other people, whether we're putting our hands in the dirt for farming, or we're putting our hands on the steering wheel for driving an 18-wheeler, or our hands to PVC pipe as plumbers, or whatever that we're doing, if we're doing that in a way that, that's corresponding to love for God and love for other people, then we're actually doing things that matter. And so we're trying to inject that into our kids now, even just understanding their own identity as part of Team Quinn. But then the more that they get involved in playing sports and doing different art, artist activities, and then eventually as they get a job, we want to show them what we've been telling you since you were young is not different. This is still your mission in the world. So that's, that's part of how we're doing that now. That's I fabulous. love that. We're going to record that and hand that out and publish that. That's good. There's, we've had another author on our show that wrote a whole book about doing that with his kids. Yeah. You know, I just want to, I just want to encourage our listeners because as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, I would love to be in a class under you. You know, I, my thoughts back to, you know, college and school days was a lot more of the you know, Charlie Brown I'm just very encouraged by, you know, your perspective and the way your excitement. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, All right, so God. Thank l- you, Martha. L- let's dig into the book because the first really deep, deep, deep subject that I wanted to focus on in the book was this whole idea behind horizontally oriented Christians versus vertically oriented Christians. Explain what that means. Yeah, so t- t- first of all, it's just this, I'll try not to sound like a seminary professor, Jim, but just, just <laughs> go with me for a second. Um, let's go back to the, the great commandments, the twin, the twin commandments, loving God and loving other people, or loving God and loving God's world. Yep. Um, just think about the direction of those things. So in other words, when, when Jesus is asked that question, of all, the, of all the things that he could have said, 
of all the things he could have said, he said that you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and that you love other people, love your neighbor as yourself. The very direction of that kind of living, it's, it's, it is a directional idea. It's that we love God first in this vertical sense. But then by loving God properly, then we love his world the same way that he does. We don't love the world in the way that First John warns us against, that we fall in love with the ways of the world. But instead, that because of our love for God, this same God who so loved the world that he sent Christ for that world, we too turn around and then f- sort of facing the world in a proper sense with a spirit-filled uh, motivation about us, then we go about living horizontally that way as well. And so we are, we are living in this cruciform, cross-shaped kind of Christian living where we love God first, but then we also must love other people. And it's not, a, it's not vertical versus horizontal. It's mm-hmm. vertical and horizontal. We have to keep both of those. Uh-huh. Things. If you lop either side of that off, you're wrong. We, we cannot hit the bullseye of loving God and loving other people if we lop off one side or the other. We have to keep them in balance and keep them in order where God is first and then others as well. But it is often something that we as Christ followers struggle with, because often we will emphasize, place an emphasis on one direction or the other. I mean, yeah, that's th- right. what you're talking about is, is almost a balanced thing, but it's not really a balancing, but keeping both in proper perspective. But it's still something important. Why is this concept, this concept of having a life that is focused on God and focused on others, the, 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 the two greatest commandments, that, like you just said? I mean, if people mm-hmm. would just recite that every day, uh, the, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that concept so important when it comes to our work? Yeah. Um, well, because if, if it's true that that's the most important thing about, loving, about living in God's world, rather, then it doesn't matter where your paycheck comes from. If it's true that the most important thing is loving God and loving other people, then insofar as you have any kind of relationship with other people at your work, then your ministry is operative and it's activated right there. So whether your paycheck comes from a, a church or a 501c3 or a missions organization or a seminary or a Christian, it, does, it really doesn't matter at that point where, where your paycheck comes from. The point is that you have the opportunity uh, to maximize the relationships that God has given you in such a way that because you first love Him, now you have the chance to love other people. So uh, for, forgive me for going on about this, but when I, when I talk to, to college and seminary students a lot, I often have this conversation where people will, will make this comment in one way or the other. They'll say, you know, while I'm getting through seminary, I'm getting through college. I have I have this job where you know I I sort of clean this building and and I uh, you know I have to deal with these you know numbskull bullheaded kind of people. And I can't wait to be done with that job so that I can go pastor a church. <laughs> and and, and immediately <laughs> they only I'm knew. Oh my gosh! <laughs> exactly. And immediately I'm 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 already sort of uh, first of all trying to bite my tongue, but then secondly I'm saying, wait a minute, let's let's think about that for just a second. What's the most important thing about living in God's world? And it, once we get to this place where they can say, well, that I love God and love other people, then I'll say, what, what exactly does it mean to minister to other people? Well, it means that I actually love them in the, in the same, because I love God. I actually love them properly. I serve them. I meet their needs. I tell them about Christ. I, I disciple. I do all these kinds of things. And, and I'm saying, what's so critical about that? It's actually having that relationship with other people. So why can't you do that now in the job that you have now? Why do you have to wait until you get to a church to do that? And that, that's, the, that's the kind of conversations I want to have with everybody, is to say to them, if Ephesians 4 is right, if 2 Corinthians 5 is right, that because we are new in Christ, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, why do we somehow think that only those who are the ordained among us are the people who are actually doing the work of ministry? It doesn't, it doesn't matter where your paycheck comes from. Loving God and loving other people is the call of every Christian. Hmm. That's great. <clears throat> the most powerful thing that's been said on iWork for him in months. I mean, it just that's exactly 
That's exactly the point. And to understand that high calling in our lives is so powerful. It's so unbelievable. All right. You spent a lot of time talking about wisdom in the book, too. Uh, as and you hold it very high up. Why is that? Well, because I wrote a dissertation on it, but you don't want to know about that part. <laughs> um, I mean, in all seriousness, I, I, I've for a long time been very, very curious about wisdom, and this this also ties in, Jim, to your earlier question of of sort of why I was interested in this topic, how how we began to put the pieces together, both Walter and I together. Um, but with respect to wisdom, if if we're looking if we're looking from Genesis to Revelation at what does the Bible have to say about work. Uh, there are a few places that are more vivid and replete with purposeful, hands-on activity and how it actually matters for God's world, and just obeying His commandments, delighting in His law. There are a few places that you can find more of that than actually the book of Proverbs. You, you see it all over the Scriptures, to be very clear, but especially just dive into a place like Proverbs 31, for example, where we see this um, this, this lady wisdom, this beautiful picture, this exemplar of lady wisdom, and the things that she is honored for is not not necessarily her prayer life. It's not necessarily her service to the church. It's not nece- some of those things may be in there. You might can find those things in there, but it's her tactile service to her family and to her community that's actually praised. And this is what and she's the capstone of the entire book. Because she, she's living in a way that corresponds to the wisdom that God has built into his world, living according to the grain of the universe in light of love for him and love for other people. And because she serves her family faithfully with hands-on material ways, she actually buys it, considers a field and buys it. She's an entrepreneur. She's, she's planting a vineyard. She's doing all these things. And it's this work-filled life that's done with delight and love and joy and wisdom um, that, that's, that's so much to be praised. That's why her, her husband and her children praise her at the gates. Right. And so I think, I think just that, for example, is a, is a really key and vivid illustration of why wisdom is important to the conversation. Uh, and it is, and uh, well, that's what we encourage Christ followers. Get your Bible open. Read it. Mm-hmm. There's so much stuff in there to help us actually understand what God's trying to use us for. I was reminded by one of our listeners through Facebook this afternoon that when we, the whole keeping our, our focus on God first and our neighbors second is something that that's what Jesus is talking about all the time and that the Holy Spirit will help us keep it in proper bounds. So yeah. th- thanks to James for reminding us that that's, that is what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. We've got, the Holy yeah. Spirit is there to keep that in that balance. Mm-hmm. But what is the danger if we're too vertically focused or what is the danger if we're too horizontally focused? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you're right. There's danger in both directions. So I think we can say uh, we, we've seen the dangers of both of those in the 20th century. So I'll start with the horizontal danger and what, what many people have called the social gospel movement, where in many cases the good news of the gospel became simply if we can fix the social structures, the, the sin that's embedded or the problems that are embedded in social structures, if we can fix those, that's the good news and that's what will heal the world. But then jump to the other extreme of this, and the good news is, well, actually, everything that's bad is the material world itself. And so all you need to do is, is, is be born again and then sort of sit tight until Jesus comes and, and takes you out of here. Well, that equally is just as dangerous because then we're not, first of all, valuing what God values about his whole world, nor are we actually penetrating the rest of culture with the good news of the gospel, both verbally and with our, with our hands and with our feet. So there's a problem on both ends of that. And that's why it's critical for us to have proper balance, I think, in that process. Talking today with Dr. Benjamin. And Quinn, who wrote a book along with Walter Strickland, Every Waking Hour. Martha, how can they find this book online? There is a website, intersectproject.org, and there you can find a, a button for resources, the books, the free class at Southeastern that you guys were talking about. And then I also want to put a shameless plug that I would encourage people to sign up for your um, 
blog, whatever you guys call it, the Intersect content, because there's yeah. great things that come that way, and then it's pushed out, and it's not too often. It's not overwhelming. So. And as long as you're online, make sure you get out to iWorkForHim.com on our Facebook page and like our Facebook page and encourage people to engage us on Facebook, just like our listeners are engaging during the middle of the show. Love to hear from our listeners. All right. So, uh, Ben, in this, in your book, towards the end of the book, you say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just change two words, but you say in the end, our jobs are ground zero. You say vocational spheres, but I say, I'll make it simple. In the end, our, I'm just doing a little translation. In sure, the sure. end, our jobs are ground zero for proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom and bearing testimony to God's restorative mission in the world. Cause Jesus said he came to restore all things. What mm. this statement though shifts the church upside down. I mean, this this I mean, this isn't not the church like that was established two thousand years ago. But today's church, if yeah. this becomes a focus, this is an upside down focus from where we've been in the last hundred years. How can that switch be made, and how can it be done? Yeah, I think it can. I think it must. In fact, I mean, it does feel a little bit upside down. But I would rather think of it as right side up because mm-hmm. if someone if someone were to hear that statement and feel like, oh, that's completely backwards from what we're doing, then I would begin to challenge that pastor, or that person, or that congregation to say things like, why does that feel backwards to you? Could it could it be that it's it's because everything that your particular congregation is about is actually in, inward focused? You're, you're you're focusing on only the the, the mission, ministry of that actual congregation, all that's going on within the four walls or however many walls that you have there of your sanctuary area. If, if, if that's actually what's going on, then we do need, we need to completely jettison that and turn around. It's not that that's unimportant. In no way am I diminishing, or Walter and I diminishing, uh, the, the importance of the gathering of the body of Christ. It's critical. Hebrews 10 is absolutely clear about this, that we gather together. And we do so to remember Christ. We do to be exhorted, to be encouraged, to, to, uh, to grow together, to take the Eucharist together, um, to, be, to sit under the ministry of the Word and prayer. But is that the end of what we're doing, or is that what actually propels us back into the world for the sake of Christ and the kingdom? It's I mean, it's, it's, Jesus, it's Jesus himself who teaches us to pray uh, that, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it forces us to get outside the walls of the church in order to see that kingdom come in our workplaces and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and so on. Okay, so then don't take too much offense at this next question, but how, <laughs> you know, how long has Southeastern been a seminary? Since 1950. Okay, so seven, almost 70 years, 67 years. And Correct. probably the majority of those graduates are still alive. And probably 50 or 60 or 70% of them are still in the pulpit somewhere or in a field somewhere. How are you going back and revisiting this issue with those pastors and mm. missionaries that have graduated to help them turn it right side up again? Yeah, yeah, great question. In the most practical of ways, Jim, um, our alumni office, for example, so our, part of our institutional advancement division, we have an alumni office that takes this conversation very, very seriously. In fact, the, the director of that office is a really close friend of mine, and he's taken this conversation, some of what Walter and I have done, and other, other resources that we have at Southeastern, and he constantly sends that to our alumni, those who, are gradu- who graduated two weeks ago from the seminary or those who graduated 20 years ago, connecting them back to the mission of Southeastern as a great commission college and 
seminary, and also even reminding them of this conversation, that it's not just about the pulpit ministry, it's not just about the four walls of your sanctuary, but it's about actually equipping people for mission at large, regardless of, of where they are in life. Mm, that's wonderful. So how how do people find out about Southeastern? Maybe they got uh, maybe got listeners whose kids are trying to figure out what college should I go to, or maybe I'm thinking about seminary. What seminary should I go to? How do people find out more about the Southeastern? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, S-E-B-T-S dot E-D-U is the primary website for Southeastern. And then also we have a, an undergraduate school, a college called the College at Southeastern. You can go to collegeatsoutheastern.com. Uh, we're a Christian liberal arts undergraduate training school that I think is phenomenal. Uh, we have about 600 students in our undergrad. We have about, we have about 3,500 students total. 600 of those are undergrad students, roughly. Um, and and I've got to be honest, it's a phenomenal place. I, I would almost warn your listeners, if you come to visit campus, you will most likely move here or at the very least begin <laughs> taking classes here. It's, it's an addictive place, um, but I would strongly encourage you to check it out. They've been warned. I like They've Fair been warning. so warned. Consider yourself warned. Dr. <laughs> Consider ben- yourself warned. Dr. Benjamin Quinn, thanks for being on I Work For Him today, and thanks for sharing every waking hour with us. We yes. really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate what you're doing as well. Thanks so much. You bet. Hey, as we come to the end of another I Work For Him show, Martha, again, a phenomenal conversation, but wow, what a great resource. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is, and not too overwhelming to pick up. Yo, 100 pages. Get a copy at intersectproject.org, intersectproject.org. we got a big lineup next week, but make sure you check out our marriage cruise. Go to Facebook, check out our events. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your host, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. We're Christ followers. Our workplace, it's our mission field, but ultimately, I, I work, work for, for him. him.